Before we uh, launch into our Christmas services, and it's just been a real blessing for me to study this book, and I hope it's been a blessing for you as well to uh, explore it. Now, I'd like to, to begin by telling you about an article that was written on the Huffington Post website a number of years ago called Everything in Australia Wants to Kill You in This Order. The article went on to list the venomous animals in Australia responsible for the most deaths. And I bet you can't guess what number one was. No, I don't think I heard it in that noise. Bees. Did you say that, John? John doesn't like bees, and for good reason. Number one most venomous animal responsible for most deaths in Australia. Now, the headline was obviously facetious, but there's an element of truth to it, isn't there? Australia can be a dangerous place to live. Some of you emigrated here because you thought it would be safe. Well, I've got news for you. If you go for a swim in the ocean, uh, there are sharks and jellyfish and all kinds of dangerous creatures. If you go for a swim in the river, you might meet a crocodile or step on a stonefish. If you go for a bushwalk, you might step on a snake or all kinds of other creepy crawlies. If you go to visit one of our rainforests in northern Queensland, you might come across this handsome fellow, a cassowary. This is the third largest and the most dangerous bird in the world. They have a natural helmet on their head, which you can see, and a 12 centimetre claw, which they will use if they have to. Welcome to Australia. Now, of course, it's all tongue-in-cheek, and I'm not trying to make us scared to go outside or scared to go in the bush, but the reason I point it out is because life in this world can sometimes feel like life in Australia. It can feel like we are surrounded on every side by things that are dangerous and that threaten our existence. We might say it this way, we live in a world filled with giants. We all face things that are bigger than us and beyond our control. Addictions, abuse, disease, loneliness, poverty, crime, bushfires, and I could go on and on. But of course, the biggest enemy, the biggest giant, the biggest baddest giant that we face is death. Life in this world has only one ending for every single one of us, the grave. In fact, the Bible calls death our last and greatest enemy. And the question that we all have to answer, every single one of us, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, is how can we go through life in a world that is filled with giants? How can we have the courage to face them? We can distract ourselves with TV and social media and holidays and all those kinds of things. We can pretend it's not really that big of an issue and just put it off till later in life. But the question is not going away. How do we deal with these very real giants in our world? How can we face them with hope and courage? Well, in the passage that we're looking at today in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the people of God are facing a literal giant. Today we come to one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. 
Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you're probably familiar with this story. In fact, it's so well known that David and Goliath has become somewhat of a catchphrase in our culture for a a little guy who takes on a bigger, stronger enemy and overcomes the odds and defeats them. For example, in 2013, Malcolm Gladwell, who's an author and a speaker, he released a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants. And the book is filled with stories about underdogs who overcame the odds and defeated a bigger enemy. And it's all built upon the story of David and Goliath. And this is the way that the story is usually read and usually interpreted. Goliath represents your fears and they're big and they're intimidating. David is your inspiring example to show you how to handle them and overcome them. But I want to ask the question, is that what the story is really about? Is this why it's in the Bible? Is it about the underdog overcoming the odds? Well, today I want to suggest that the story is far more significant than that. I want to show you that the story plays a significant role, not just in the book of 1 Samuel, but in the story of the Bible and God's plan of salvation for the world. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be reading large parts of the story today, so I'd encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you the context. As we've seen over the past couple of months, the book of 1 Samuel is all about the transition to the monarchy in Israel. It's all about the rise of the kings in the people of God. And what we've seen is that Saul was the first king of Israel. He was the people's choice, tall, handsome and strong. He was a king like all the other nations. But Saul failed where it really mattered. He disobeyed God and so he was rejected by God. And so in his place, God has chosen David to be king. The small, young, skinny shepherd boy from the tiny town of Bethlehem. Last week in chapter 16, we saw that David was secretly anointed by Samuel. This week in chapter 17, David will come to the attention of the people in spectacular fashion. And so we're going to look at this story, we're going to unpack it, and then we're going to ask the question, what does it really mean? What is it all about? Why is this story in the Bible? And as we unpack this story, we'll see that it unfolds in six main scenes. And it begins in scene number one with the Philistines and the Israelites. Verses 1 to 3, but let's pick it up in verse 2. This is what we read. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley in between them. And so the story begins once again with the Israelites and the Philistines at war. The Israelites, of course, were the people of God and the Philistines were their neighbour and their constant enemy. And Saul, the people's choice for king, is leading them into battle. The tall, impressive Saul is about to meet his match. And this is what we see in scene two of the story where we're introduced to Goliath, the giant. This is what we read in verse four. 
a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, the Philistine town, came out of the Philistine camp. And so from the vast army of the Philistines emerges their champion, Goliath. He is their greatest soldier and he has been selected to represent them in battle. And he is a terrifying prospect. The first thing we're told about Goliath is his height. In the second half of verse 4, his height was six cubits and a span. Now this makes him about nine foot six inches, almost three metres tall. Now the tallest man in recent history was a man named Robert Wadlow. He was eight foot eleven inches, around 2.7 metres, so slightly shorter than Goliath. Now you should also be aware that there are some other ancient manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, the Septuagint, that actually record Goliath's height as four cubits and a span, which would make him around six foot six to nine inches, a bit over two metres. Now either way, he is a big guy, especially compared to David. And not only is he tall, he's also strong. In verses 5 to 7, we're given a description of his armour and his weapons. This is what we're told. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And just so we're clear, that's a coat of metal, not postcards and envelopes and, and that kind of thing. Just to be clear. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So that's almost 60 kilograms. Kind of like carrying Nathaniel on your back. And he had bronze armour on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. In other words, really big. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, around 7 kilograms. And his shield bearer went before him. So Goliath is covered from head to toe in metal and bronze. He is like a one-man indestructible fortress. But he is a fortress that can speak, or, or yell to be more precise. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And so every day Goliath would come out and he would issue this challenge to the Israelites. Choose a man, send him out to fight me. Winner takes all. Now of course Israel had already chosen their man. They had chosen King Saul specifically to fight their battles. Remember back in chapter 8. And Saul was the closest thing that they had to Goliath. He was the tallest man in Israel, remember. Strong and impressive. And so I'm sure that when Goliath issued this challenge, the Israelite soldiers were looking over at Saul, thinking, okay, buddy, this is your time. This is why we picked you. Go. But you see, we were told last week that the Spirit of God departed from Saul. And so they look at him. He does not speak. He does not move. 
He's terrified. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says that the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, Saul shows us that the opposite is also true. That once we are removed from God and his saving help, the threats of this world become paralysing to us. Now, there's no question that this situation was scary. There's no question that we face situations in life that are incredibly scary. But the question is, who or what are we relying on in those moments? The people of Israel, they were relying on Saul, on his size and his strength. The problem was that Goliath was bigger and stronger. And you see, we too are going to face problems and challenges in life that are bigger and stronger than our wealth, our intellect and our strength. And the question in those moments is who or what are we relying on? Israel are relying on Saul. They thought that that he is what they needed. He's the king they asked for. But they are very quickly discovering that he is not the king they need. And the good news is, though, that though God has departed from Saul, God has not abandoned his people. And God is still at work for his people, but in the most unlikely of places and in the most unlikely of ways. And that's what we see in the next scene as we shift from the battlefield to the pasture. And we're introduced or reintroduced to David, the giant killer. See, David is tending to his father's sheep in the pasture. He was the youngest boy in the family and his older brothers were out on the battlefield facing the Philistines. But David stayed at home looking after his father's sheep. Now Jesse, his dad, would occasionally send him to the battlefield to bring supplies and to bring messages to his brothers. This is what we find David doing in verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. This is a day like any other for David and it's an ordinary errand on which his father sends him. But can you remember the last time a father sent a son on an ordinary errand in the book of 1 Samuel? It was Saul who was sent to go looking for his father's lost donkeys. And what happened then? It ended up with Saul being appointed as the king. We should be learning the lesson that with God, ordinary situations, can become or be the beginning of extraordinary things. See, we have no idea about the challenges and the opportunities that await us each and every day. I'm certain that as David set out for the battlefield that morning, he had no idea that the defining challenge of his life was just a few hours ahead. Each and every day, we need to cast ourselves upon the mercy and the care of God. This is what David does and look what happens as the story continues. Verse 20. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. So there's not much fighting going on, but there's a lot of cheerleading. They're just kind of standing there yelling at one another. Verse 21. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. In fact, it's kind of like a high school dance. You've got the boys standing on one side, the girls standing on the other, and everyone just kind of awkwardly standing around. Except in this case, Goliath has stepped forward. 
He's ready to dance. He's just waiting for a partner. And on this day, his dance partner might have just arrived. Verse 23. As he, that's David, was talking with them, his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Now Goliath is issuing his usual challenge, but on this day something significant has happened. Something has happened that will change everything. Did you catch it? And David heard it. Now did anyone care on the battlefield that day that young, small, skinny David had heard the challenge? Of course not. But this was the turning point for Israel and for God's work in the world. See, verse 16 tells us that Goliath issued this challenge for 40 days. Now, if you're a studious Bible reader, the number 40 should make you prick your ears. 40 is a significant number. It's used to signify a period of testing in the Bible. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the Promised Land. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days before beginning his ministry. And now the army of Israel has been tested by Goliath for 40 days. And they failed. They have failed to trust God and to step out and meet this challenge. In fact, one scholar paraphrases Goliath's taunt in this way. It's as if Goliath was saying to them, Am I not a God-hating pagan Philistine? Then why won't any of your men come out, any of your men who say they believe in the living God, Why won't they come out and challenge me? They must not believe in him at all. And the truth is, we face the same kind of test today. People will say to us, well, we know what they teach you in church. That's all good and well, that's nice. But let's see how you do when you're faced with the good-looking colleague at work who takes an interest in you. Let's see how you or are you fair when the opportunity comes up to get rich if you will just cheat a little bit? Let's see the look on your God-praising face when you receive a terrifying medical diagnosis. When your share portfolio crashes, when your house burns down, when you lose your job. When these times of testing come, the question is always the same. Will we trust God and step forward in faith? Or will we turn away from him? For Saul and the army of Israel, they failed this test. But now that David has arrived, it's all about to change. Verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now these are the first recorded words of David in the Bible. And finally, God is brought into the picture. Up until this point, all we've been told about is how big and scary and intimidating Goliath is. But to David, he is simply a disgrace, an uncircumcised Philistine, and he will most certainly be defeated by the living God. And you see, this is what makes all the difference when trials and tests and temptations come. A living God. Not just a God of your past or a God of your intellect or a God of your memory, but a living God. 
A God who is within you. A God who is with you. A living God makes all the difference in the trials and tests and challenges of life. And this is exactly David's point. But not everyone is thrilled with this point that David is making. His brothers hear what he's saying and they're not pleased. Which brings us to scene four between David and his brothers. We pick it up in verse 28. When Eliab, remember Eliab last week, the tall, strong Eliab, the one that Samuel thought must be king? When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him, maybe a little bit of jealousy as well, and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And then in verse 29, like many, many younger brothers throughout the years, David says, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? David's not only facing opposition from Goliath, but even from his own brother. And you see, our faith is sometimes challenged not only by obvious enemies, but even by those close to us, our family and our friends. Sometimes we start to follow Jesus and live a life of faith, but those close to us can try to stop us or convince us otherwise. Now Jesus told us that this would be the case, and so the question we have to answer is who will we trust? Who will we obey? God or man? This was Saul's downfall. God or family? God or friends? For David, he defied his oldest brother and he obeyed God. He continued to press the matter and word of David's words got back to Saul and Saul summoned him. This is what we see in scene 5 between David and Saul. Verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one... Lose heart on account of this Philistine. Won't even name him. Your servant will go out and fight him. So finally, someone is willing to go out and face Goliath. And it's not tall, strong, impressive Saul. It's the skinny, small, shepherd boy, David. In fact, to fight in the Israelite army, you had to be 20 years or older. So we don't know how, exactly how old David was at this point, but we do know that he was a teenager. And this is why Saul says to him in verse 33, You are not able to go out, and go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you see where David's confidence and trust is? It's in God. He gives his own resume of killing the lions and killing the bears with his own hand, but he, who does he say actually did that? It was God. 
God protected him. And if God has done that for him in the past, then God will do that for him right now. Now Saul is either persuaded by David or is worn down because he says to him, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now in the following verses, Saul tries to give David his armour. But Saul's a big, strong man and David's a small, skinny teenager. And so it doesn't fit. He's not used to it. But there's actually a deeper symbolism going on here. Saul is unwittingly giving David the royal garments. Saul is the king on the way out and David is his designated replacement. But David, he will not be a king like Saul. Saul's ways will not be his ways. He will not be a king like all the other nations. And so he rejects this armour. Verse 39, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. David would go into battle as a shepherd. And this brings us to the final scene between David and Goliath. The two champions now face one another in the valley and it's time to dance. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, big, strong, courageous Goliath, put someone in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Seriously, is this the best you've got? You're a kid with a staff in your hand. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Goliath doesn't mind a bit of sledging, a bit of trash talk, but neither does David. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I take your wild birds and wild animals and raise you, you losing your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. In fact, I won't just give you to them, I'll give your entire army to the birds and the animals. And the whole world will know. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It's fair to say that David can match the big fella for spicy speech. And then David gives us the key to the entire episode. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. God saves not by human strength but by human weakness. God saves in unlikely ways and through uncommon means. In this story, it's a shepherd boy with a sling. In the story of the Bible, it's a humble saviour on a wooden cross because the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver his people. So now finally we come 
to the main event. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. How did he fall? Face down. Remember how Dagon fell in the temple back in chapter 4? Face down, bowing before the Lord. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Verse 53, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. David steps out in faith and God is faithful to David. David passes the test that the armies of Israel had failed. David is the giant killer on behalf of the people of God. It's an amazing story, isn't it? But what's it all about? Why is it in the Bible? Has God placed this story in the Bible primarily to motivate us and to inspire us? Let me ask you this question. Who do you identify with in the story? I'm guessing it's probably not Saul or the soldiers or Iliad and it's definitely not Goliath. It's probably David. You probably thought at some point, I need to be like David. I need to muster up the courage to face the giants in my life and in this world. But I've got some news for you. You're not David. You can learn from David to be sure, but you're not David. You see, we tend to see ourselves as the hero of every story. But we are not the hero of the Bible. Because the Bible is not primarily about us. Now don't hear me wrong, the Bible is written for us, but it's not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. He's the hero. He said to a group of people once, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me. The story of David and Goliath is meant to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the true and greater David. Because like David... Jesus was sent by his father to his brothers who were in the midst of a battle. Jesus' brothers rejected him, mocked him and accused him of evil. Jesus was not though concerned primarily with the opinion of man but the glory of God. Jesus went into battle as a shepherd for his sheep with total trust in God. And like David, Jesus won the victory on behalf of his people. But unlike David, Jesus did not just go into battle risking his life. Jesus willingly laid down his life, not for his friends, but for his enemies. And unlike David, Jesus did not just face an intimidating soldier. He faced our greatest enemies, sin, Satan and death. Jesus 
is our true champion. And if David points us to Jesus and Goliath points us to sin, Satan and judgment, then who does that make us? The Israelites. We're the ones who run away and cower in our tents. We're the ones who cannot defeat our enemies on our own. We are fearful, sinful, incompetent and totally outgunned. We are totally reliant on God sending to us a champion who can fight on our behalf. And the good news of the Bible, of Christianity, is that this is exactly what God does. God sends Jesus from heaven to earth to be our champion, our representative. Jesus lives the life that we haven't lived. Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die. And Jesus rises again, defeating all of our enemies. See, we can go through life with hope and courage because we have a champion who has faced our greatest enemies on our behalf. And you might say to me, well, that's wonderful, Adam. That's the best news in the world. But but how can this really help me in my struggles right now? How can this help me when I'm diagnosed with cancer? When my loved one dies? Does this story have any application for me right now? And the answer is a resounding yes. Did you notice what the Israelites did after David had defeated Goliath? They surged forward with a shout to chase the Philistines. You see, the decisive battle had already been won. David had defeated Goliath. But there was still a battle to be had. And the Israelites, they were fighting not for victory, they were fighting from victory. They were fighting because their champion had already won the decisive battle on their behalf. And this is the Christian life as well. We're not fighting for victory, to earn God's love, to earn God's favour. We are fighting from victory because Jesus has already won the victory on our behalf. And so I wonder where you are this morning. Are you still cowering in the tent, not realising that victory has been won by your champion? Are you still filled with fear over the enemies that we face? Are you still filled with condemnation over your sin that's been paid for? Are you still uncertain about where you stand with God? Or have you surged forward with a shout to follow your champion into the victory that he's won for you? Our champion, Jesus Christ, has defeated our greatest giants so we can follow him in a life of victory over sin, Satan and death. This means you don't have to fear the future. You can say like David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This means you don't have to fear your sin. You can be honest about the sin in your life. When the law condemns and the devil accuses, you can say, yes, I am a great sinner, but I have a great saviour. You don't have to fear death. When the terminal diagnosis comes, when your loved one dies, There is a sting, to be sure. But Jesus Christ has defeated this enemy. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We live in a world of giants. There are dangerous giants all around us that threaten our existence. But we have a giant killer. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is our champion. He has won our victory. And we can follow him 
with a shout into a life of victory over sin, Satan and death. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have sent us a champion and he has faced down and defeated our greatest enemies. And so we don't need to live in fear, Lord. We can surge forward with a shout following our champion who has loved us and made a way for us to know you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your good name. Amen. In response, church, let's stand together. I hear the Savior say